Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 9 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. The sun was barely starting to go down on the summer evening in 1961 when Michael Gregston and Valerie Storey pulled off the road into the cornfield at Dorney Reach, Buckinghamshire. They frequently went parking there, or trysting as was often said at the time. Sometimes others had the same idea, but on this particular Tuesday evening it was just them and the faint sound of cars passing along the road behind. They sat in the Grey Morris Minor for half an hour smoking and chatting without the faintest idea that anyone else was there. It was the tapping on the driver's side window that startled them. Earlier that evening on Tuesday, August 22nd, 1961, Michael and Valerie had finished work at the Road Research Laboratory in Slough, Berkshire. Michael, 36, had known 23-year-old Valerie for a long time. She had worked at the Road Laboratory, which researched road safety and traffic management, among other things, for five years since school, and she was, at the time, a scientific assistant. 
Michael was a scientist at the lab and according to Valerie, their affair had begun years earlier at a Christmas dance when she was 20. By the summer of 1961, Michael and his wife Janet were separated but not divorced and their two young sons live with their mother. Michael and Valerie had been romantically involved for a number of months and management at the research lab had been forced to speak with them about their relationship with talks of one of them possibly shifting to another division as their romantic involvement was against the civil service code of conduct at the time. Michael arrived at Valerie's parents' home in Chippingham near Slough at 5.30pm pulling up in the grey Morris Minor which he had borrowed from his aunt after selling his car to make some cash. Valerie's parents knew him well and after staying for tea, the pair left for the old station inn in Taplow for a drink with friends, carrying maps and various things as they were organising a social club car rally being held at their work that coming weekend. Just before 9pm after leaving the old station inn, Michael and Valerie drove to the secluded spot in the cornfield at Dorney Reach they knew well. When the couple heard the tapping on Michael's window, they looked up to see a gun. An old cowboy type, about eight inches long, fairly narrow, and what Valerie thought may have been a thirty-eight. Michael wound the window halfway down as the man outside poked the gun in, saying, This is a hold-up. I am a desperate man. I have been on the run for four months. Valerie could only see the man from the shoulders to his waist, but she could see he was in a smart, dark suit and white shirt and tie. He reached in, pulled the keys from the ignition, and let himself into the back seat. Valerie described later that she didn't even think about screaming. It had all happened so fast. Initially, after getting in the car, the man said, You will be alright if you do as I tell you and then he barely stopped talking for the next two hours. He refused their offer of leaving with the car, but he insisted on taking what money they had on them. Valerie got a look at him, but his face was covered with a handkerchief from the eyes down, and from what she could tell, he wasn't someone she had ever seen before. Along with the suit, he was wearing a waistcoat, and his shoes appeared polished. Around an hour later, they were still sat there, the man talking incessantly about himself. He was chatty but manic, often saying things and then contradicting himself. When the pubs closed, the group noticed a man come out of a house around 100 yards across the field to put away a bicycle. The man in the back seat then said if he came to the car and anyone said anything, he would shoot all three of them. He spoke, Valerie noticed, with a soft voice, not very deep and fairly young, perhaps in his twenties. She noticed a specific speech pattern she associated with London types. Instead of saying things and think, he spoke with a hard F, saying things and think. As he continued talking, he looked at his gun, saying, This is like a cowboy's gun. I feel rather like a cowboy, before telling them he had never shot anyone. 
He said he did not smoke. He was hungry after sleeping rough for two nights. Valerie felt this contradicted his appearance, as his suit looked neat. He told them he had been visiting Oxford. His back and forth did confuse the couple, as he had begun by stating he had been on the run for four months, but then later changed to 18 months, and he said that every policeman in England was looking for him. He took their watches, which he would later return, and what money they could find. He didn't seem to know what he wanted to do, but he was not interested in letting them go. Around 11.30pm, after almost two hours in the cornfield, he told Michael Gregston to start the engine and get driving towards London. For the next four hours, they drove a confusing route through the northwest outer suburbs. As they went through Slough, he asked Michael to pull over at a cafe he knew of to get some food. This is when Valerie noticed it was almost midnight. As they approached the boundary of London Heathrow Airport, they stopped at a garage for petrol. As they were driving, the gunman asked about the positioning of the gears of the Morris. He seemed nervous about driving and was mentioning that Michael needed to be careful at the lights. His questioning of the workings of the gears and driving was enough to prompt the couple to ask him if he himself drove a car, to which he confidently replied, Oh yes, I can drive all sorts of cars. As the hours went on, Valerie and Michael tried to speak with him in a manner that might have led to him releasing them and taking the car. They were just trying to be compliant. As they drove north towards St Albans, the gunman told Michael to take the A6 towards Luton and Bedford. As the time went on, Valerie and Michael became more worried. They had no idea what he wanted. They seemed to be driving around with no purpose. He didn't want their money, he didn't want the car, and yet he would not let them go. It was 1.30am by this time, and after changing his mind about exactly which direction he wanted Michael to drive, he was saying he was tired. I just need a kip, he kept saying, one minute instructing Michael down a particular road before changing his mind again. Back on the A6 just a few miles south of Bedford, Michael was told to pull into the lay-by at the top of the hill, a place called Dead Man's Hill. Initially, Michael said no. The first time, he hadn't complied with the gunman's requests, and it irritated him. He threatened them with the gun. As Michael pulled in and the headlights were switched off, the man repeated himself. I just want to take a kip. But he wanted to tie them up so they could not escape. The couple begged him not to shoot them, to which he answered, If I was going to shoot you, I would have done it before now. He said he would need to restrain them if he was going to sleep, and he asked the couple what he should use. One of them suggested that he could use his own tie, which he said no, he would need it. He asked Michael for his tie and proceeded to wrap it around Valerie's wrists. He then noticed there was a duffel bag in the front of the car with clothing in it and he asked Michael to hand it over. 
With two hands on the bag, Michael turned around to pass it into the back seat, and at that moment the gunman fired two shots in quick succession, both at Michael Gregston's head. Valerie screamed. You shot him. You bastard. Why did you do that? The gunman shouted back that Michael had frightened him. He took a piece of clothing out of the bag and wrapped it around Michael's head as Valerie begged to get a doctor. He then yelled at Valerie to get into the back seat telling her to be quiet. Frantic, she refused until, with the gun in her face, she complied and did what he asked. The man was wearing black gloves and was trying to get them off. He made Valerie remove one. It was then he forced himself onto Valerie and raped her. At one point he was demanding she kiss him, the handkerchief having fallen from his face, but she refused. A car passed on the A6 which momentarily lit up his face, the only time she would describe ever catching a proper glimpse of him. Once again she noticed his speech as he said, Be quiet, I'm thinking, rather than thinking. He got out of the car holding the gun to Valerie and ordered she drag Michael out of the driver's seat. Valerie couldn't get him out alone and the gunman ended up helping her drag Michael onto the ground of the lay-by. The gunman then asked Valerie to start the car and show him where the gears were and how they worked, again highlighting his lack of car knowledge. Fumbling around, she got the car going, showing him the gears and the lights. The car stopped running and she started it back up again, leaving it running as he took her place in the driver's seat. She ran to where Michael lay dead on the ground before the gunman got out of the car again and approached her, threatening to hit her and pacing like he was nervous. She was standing up, finding the one pound note she still had on her, begging him to take it and take the car. He started to walk back towards the vehicle, a little over six feet away from her, when he turned round and fired the first shot. The first two bullets hit Valerie's abdomen, causing her to fall to the ground before three more hit her upper body. This was the moment she lay completely motionless. The gunman walked towards the car, and she thought she heard him reloading the weapon before he turned back to face her one more time, firing three more shots, which all missed. He walked back towards her again, this time nudging her to see if she was dead. She pretended she was. It was 3am when he drove off in the Morris heading towards Luton. What had begun as a confused carjacking escalating to a kidnapping... And after six long hours when it seemed the gunman had run out of ideas, the ordeal took a sharp turn as Michael Gregston lay lifeless in the lay-by of the A6 and Valerie's story lay beside him, raped, shot and left for dead. Just before 7am, around four hours after the man sped off in the car clunking the gears, a farmer came upon the two lifeless bodies. Michael long dead and Valerie semi-conscious but alive. He raced up the road where John Kerry, 
an Oxford student who had taken a holiday job was counting cars for the Ministry of Transport. He soon flagged cars down and help was called. John went to Valerie who had regained consciousness and was able to jot down a few things she said. We were held up by a man with a gun who shot us. He said it was a thirty-eight. We picked him up about 9 or 9.30 at Slough. He is about my own height. He has large staring eyes. He has light fairish hair. These details were not made public for some time. Detectives and tracker dogs spent the entire day searching the surrounding area for clues, as well as making house-to-house inquiries in the extended area. Michael's body was taken away and later identified by his wife, Janet. Valerie was transported to Bedford General Hospital, where she was rushed into surgery for the five bullet wounds. Valerie's clothing was taken away for forensic examination, which was able to establish that semen present on her underwear matched an O secreter, which at the time was the most advanced method of semen analysis. The problem was that during this period, 36% of all men in Great Britain were known to be O-type secretors, so it wasn't narrowing down the search too much. This test is now outdated worldwide and no longer used as a forensic testing tool. Surgeons were amazed that Valerie had survived her injuries. One bullet had entered the side of her head and exited through her throat, where others had gone through her chest. With her spinal cord severed, Valerie woke to the news that she was paralysed from the shoulders down. The first two officers to take witness statements at Valerie's bedside were Detective Sergeant Douglas Rees and female police constable Rutland. When she was able to, Valerie gave the police a full rundown of everything she had remembered that the man had said that night. Valerie denied that she told John Kerry, the student who came to her aid, that the killer had light fairish hair. There was also some confusion over whether she had originally said they picked him up as a hitchhiker, but she clarified, describing his approach in the cornfield. The details of Valerie's statements would be held back from the public so as to have something to use against any suspect who might surface. They did, however, get a description from Valerie and they worked on releasing a composite sketch of the attacker. She was shown photographs and she didn't recognise any of the men but she did indicate that if she saw him, she would know. When asked in hospital, Valerie's description altered a little from what she had said straight after the attack. The man she believed was around 30, 168 centimetres tall, around 5 foot 5, medium build and had a pale face. He had dark brown hair, greased and combed back with no parting, and deep set brown eyes. She stressed that the passerby's car lights only hit his face for a few seconds. He was softly spoken, with a voice that was not deep, and described how he pronounced T-H's with an F sound. 
That evening, the Morris Miner they were driving was found dumped behind the Redbridge tube station in Essex, 60 miles southeast of the murder scene. The following day, August 24th, a cleaner was carrying out the usual sweep of the 36A bus in the Peckham Depot in southeast London. As he was clearing rubbish on the top deck of the bus, he came across an old 38 caliber Enfield revolver wrapped in a handkerchief, along with loose bullets and five boxes, almost 60 rounds of ammunition, hidden under the back seat. He always checked under that seat, as he had found two dead rats before, and the evening prior when he cleaned that same bus, it was empty. With the gun matching Valerie's description, Scotland Yard began looking into the bus route in the hope they would find a link to the crimes. The bus ran from Rye Lane Depot in New Cross to Victoria, Hyde Park Corner, Marble Arch, Edgware Road, Maida Vale and West Kilburn, then southeast towards Peckham. The conductress on that journey, Pamela Pat, made a statement after the gun was found. She remembered a man she did not know going to the top deck of the bus. She had recognised all of the passengers on the northern leg of the journey as they were all regulars, except this one man. Her statement read, quote, At 6.10am a young man of dirty appearance wearing a dirty raincoat got on near the Grosvenor Hotel and went to the upper deck where he was the only passenger for a time. This matched the logic that for the seat to be lifted, no one else would have been able to be sitting on it at the time. But police did not comply with regular standards of collecting that statement and it would never be officially accepted. Detective Superintendent Bob Acott, who led the investigation at Scotland Yard, announced that ballistics analysis confirmed the gun found on the bus was the weapon that had killed Michael Gregston. The gun had been wiped clean of any fingerprints, although it had been recorded that when collecting the gun, police had not used gloves. The handkerchief was stored for future forensic testing. constant news coverage of the case had caused concern throughout the country. There was no clear motive for the seemingly random and brutal attack. If it wasn't someone known to the couple, then there was a murderer and rapist loose ready to strike again. Within a few days, the press had brought in witnesses who claimed they had seen the grey Morris Minor driving towards London in the early hours of that morning. At around 7am, the same time Valerie was discovered, Edward Blackhall had been a passenger in his friend John Skillet's car in Gants Hill on the northeastern edge of London. They noticed a grey Morris Minor driving fast, and so John Skillet decided to catch up with the Morris. At a roundabout, the two cars came side by side. Both men got a good look at the Morris driver before he sped off. A little later, another man, James Trower, had seen the Morris turning a corner near the Red Bridge tube station where it was later found. He had parked to wait for a friend he was picking up for work 
and noticed the Morris because it was being driven badly. He watched the car pull up in Avondale Crescent where it would later be found and he saw the driver's face in full and noticed he was wearing a dark jacket and white shirt. Later, another resident on the street would back up that description. Authorities now had difficulty reconciling the description given by Valerie's story because her physical recollection differed from these new witnesses. This led to the police taking the rare step of releasing two different composite sketches. The second sketch showed similar dark hair and dark eyes, but his facial features were different and his hair was longer with a wave. By now, Superintendent Bob Acott had made a plea to the public again. This time he was focusing on the hoteliers along the 36A bus route, requesting any owners of guest houses and hostels think about any guests who were acting strangely around the time. What the entire investigation was lacking was a suspect. Two days after police released the double sketch and as Valerie's story was moved to Guy's Hospital in London, she came forward to say that she remembered some different details about the man that attacked her. This time she believed his eyes were not brown, they were icy blue and saucer-like. Records show that eight days after the murder, the same day that Valerie adjusted her description, Janet Gregston, Michael Gregston's widow, was visiting her brother-in-law at his antique store in Swiss Cottage, northwest London. She happened to be looking out of the window as a young, dark-haired man walked into a dry cleaner's across the arcade. Janet gasped as she grabbed her brother-in-law's arm, pulling him to see. She would describe how she yelled, "'That's him. He fits the description.' I have an overpowering feeling that it's him. She would later tell police that she was convinced because of his icy blue saucer-like eyes. The strange thing was that at that point the police had yet to release Valerie's new account of the change in eye colour, so it would be questioned as to how Janet would know that description. The only public description had mentioned the attacker as having brown eyes. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The owner of the Alexandra Court Hotel contacted the police. They had a man currently staying there a Mr. Frederick Durrant, who had locked himself in his room the last five days and was acting suspiciously. When detectives arrived to interview Durrant, he confessed that his real name was Peter Louis Alphon. He was the son of a man in a senior position at Scotland Yard. He lived off the proceeds of gambling, an old inheritance, and was coincidentally known to be a terrible, erratic driver. Alphon told police that the night of the murder, he had visited his mother in the early part of the evening and he had actually stayed the night at a different hotel, the Vienna Hotel in Maida Vale. The Vienna, the police soon realised, was on the 36A bus route. But there was something else the officers noticed. Peter Alphon closely resembled Valerie's first description and he had dark, deep-set eyes and a very similar hairstyle. His alibi for at least the early part of the evening of the murder checked out. His mother had confirmed it, and when visiting the Vienna, they found he had actually stayed the night there. Alphon was released.
When detectives visited the Vienna Hotel in Maida Vale, they found the 36A bus past the bottom of the road it was on. The owner explained that the room Alphon had originally stayed in was the shared basement which had four beds, room 24. But later, a single room, room 6, had become available and he had moved. This is the room he apparently stayed in on the night of the murder. The assistant manager confirmed that Alphon was present at the hotel by 11.30pm on the night the incident took place and was moved to room 6. This gave Alphon his alibi. The next day, the day following the murder, when the assistant manager saw Peter Alphon around noon, he described him as being in a great rush to leave the hotel. He then moved to the Alexandra Court Hotel, which is where he had holed up in his room for the next five days. The assistant manager of the Vienna who had confirmed Alphonse's alibi was William Nudds, a shady character himself who was known to use various aliases and held charges of fraud. While the investigation continued, Nudds and his common-law wife were sacked from the hotel after money had gone missing. Nudds did offer up some new information. Another man stayed at the Vienna in the shared room the night before the murder and he had shared the room with Alphon. His name on the register was Jay Ryan. Jay Ryan had left the Vienna the following morning, the morning before the murder, but soon returned saying he had forgotten something in the basement bedroom. When he passed the hotel's reception, according to Nudds, he asked the way to Queensway. Nudds had told him where he could catch the 36A bus. Police did not have their sights completely off Alphon. With a new description of icy blue eyes and knowing that Alphon matched the first sketch, his eyes deeply set and hazel, they had a new man to pursue, Jay Ryan, if that was even his name. The address he gave, they soon learned, was false. On September 7th in Richmond, southwest London, Micah Delal was attacked in her home. The woman described a man breaking in, threatening her, and claiming he was the A6 murderer. It was September 11th, and 20 days after the murder when police received a call from the Vienna Hotel. In room 24, the shared room where both Alphon and Jay Ryan had stayed prior to the murder, on a chair closest to Ryan's bed in an alcove, Robert Crocker, the manager of the hotel, had found two spent cartridges. Since the day before the murder, however, only two people had stayed in that room a man whom police had been able to completely rule out, and Jay Ryan. But Ryan had not returned after the murder, so if the dates given by the hotel staff and the register was right, how was it possible? Had the killer left old spent cartridges in the hotel room before the murder? This brought up the issue of whether the hotel's guest register had been altered, something that would never be fully determined. 
the 36A bus conductress had recognised only one man who was not a regular on the bus that day the gun was found, the 24th. It was just after 6am when he went up to the top deck alone. Could the register have been altered to suggest that Jay Ryan had stayed on a different night? The hotel argued that they had not seen these cartridges earlier because since Ryan had stayed in the room, it had not had any other occupants. Even so, the fact that Alphon had been in room 24 prior to Ryan meant that he remained in the spotlight while they located Jay Ryan. When the ballistics report came through, it confirmed that the two cartridges matched the gun found on the bus, the murder weapon. Peter Alphon was officially named a suspect by Superintendent Acott on September 22nd and his description was circulated to the press. The police made a nationwide public request, including a television appeal, for Peter Alphon to come forward. He presented to police that night and said it was to clear his name. He sat for his third intensive interview before they prepared him for an identity parade. Alphon was placed in several lineups. The first at the Cannon Row police station where the car witnesses and a new witness attended. This new person believed he served the killer petrol that night when he stopped with Michael and Valerie in the car. None of the men picked Alphon or anyone from the lineup. The following day, Alphon was taken to Guy's Hospital to stand for a parade for Valerie's story. She did not pick Peter Alphon from the group of men. Instead, she chose a man who had been a volunteer. There was one other person brought in. Micah Delal, the woman attacked in Richmond, identified Alphon as her attacker, the man who told her he was the murderer. But four days after he had handed himself in, Peter Alphon was released without charge, although he was not dropped as a suspect. Within two days, police, having held a conference with the Director of Public Prosecutions in regards to Alphon, got a call from Ireland. A man wanted to tell them that his associate, Mr. J. Ryan, was visiting in Ireland currently and he had helped him write some postcards. One was addressed to a Mrs. Hanratty. His friend Jim's mother, Jim Ryan, was James Hanratty's alias. Police questioned how this man knew to contact police about a James Hanratty when that name had never come up in the investigation, but what they were missing was that this man, knowing the police were looking for a J. Ryan, knew Hanratty as both J. Ryan and Hanratty, so it could be assumed that he was giving them J. Ryan's real name. Even stranger was that there was now a link to the sighting by Janet Gregston out of the window of her brother-in-law's shop eight days after her estranged husband was murdered. Janet's brother-in-law's antique shop was coincidentally only around a mile or so from the Vienna Hotel. That was where she randomly saw the man she felt intuitively was the killer go into the dry cleaners. Besides her gut feeling, 
she was sure it was the killer based only on a description of icy blue eyes that had not yet been made public. According to Janet's brother-in-law, her sister's husband, William Ewer, he went into the dry cleaners and obtained the name of the man they saw, Jay Ryan. If the trial documents portray a valid timeline, it would be at least another week before Jay Ryan's name would be even given to the police by the Vienna Hotel. So following William Ewer's account, while police were busy chasing Alphon, he and Michael Gregston's wife had seen a man out of the window randomly and had an intuitive feeling he was the murderer, and that man turned out to go by the name Jay Ryan. Then another coincidence. Ewer saw this Jay Ryan again the next day, followed him into a florist while Ryan ordered some flowers. Ewer then phoned the police. Upon arrival, police were given the florist order book and found the recipient of the flowers was to be a Mrs. Hanratty, thus linking Jay Ryan officially as also being James Hanratty. He was sending flowers to his mother. By chatting around Swiss Cottage, Ewer then discovered another antiques dealer, Mrs. Louise Anderson, had become friendly with James Hanratty, with him staying with her on occasion. She would soon go on to give police contradicting statements. She was both frightened of him and then other times quote that they were on great terms. If the assistant manager of the Vienna, who was not known for his honesty, was to be believed, Jay Ryan, now known as James Hanratty, was the man to have last stayed in room 24 where the cartridges were found and although the date was given as before the killing, he had apparently been shown how to catch the 36A bus. The only thing that did not match up was the date on the guest register of the hotel and the hotel statements. Police now had a new number one suspect. The following morning, Superintendent Acott held a police conference involving the four counties working the murder hunt. There were a few things about James Hanratty that needed to be discussed. Firstly, and this was not made public at the time, Valerie Story had told police that after Michael Gregston had been killed, the gunman had asked her again what her name was. After she told him, she claimed that she had then asked him what she should call him. To which he replied, Well, you can call me Jim. She didn't believe that he was being truthful, but it would not take long for police to learn that James Hanratty often went by Jim. Another thing that Valerie had recalled in one of her interviews was that during one of the killer's long rants, he had told the couple that he had undergone CT, short for corrective training. CT is where the court may order an offender to undergo in-prison corrective training instead of a regular term. This would only occur with a repeat offender, where their view is that the particular offender requires training of what they called corrective character or reform, and it would be done over a long period of time. The man had also told Valerie that he had done the lot, which everyone in the room knew meant that he had served the whole of his sentence without remission. In other words, he was not let out early. In September of 1961, there were only five men who had done an entire CT sentence without remission, and one of those five was James Hanratty. 
because of the call they had got from Hanratty's associate in Dublin, saying Hanratty was there writing postcards. The investigation fast-tracked to Ireland to trace Hanratty down. What they didn't know, however, was that Hanratty had left Dublin, buying a car to travel back to London, where he had stayed with Louise Anderson, the antique store owner, the one who happened to be an acquaintance of the murder victim's brother-in-law. He had spent the last week or so moving around and staying at different places. A friend had tipped him off that the police were looking for him over some of the house burglaries he had recently committed. Having just served, he knew that any robbery charge would see him face a five-year prison sentence, and so he laid low. Hanratty, who was then 24 years old, was between 5 foot 7 and 5 foot 8, had very distinctly clear blue eyes and naturally auburn hair which was brushed back without a parting, with a sort of widow's peak in the centre. He had a habit of wearing it both forward and back like the descriptions that had been given. He had a London accent and like Peter Alphon he did not have a particularly deep voice but he did distinctively pronounce his THs as Fs, and it would not be long before investigators would discover that he had an O blood type, plus that additional secretor status test, although now discredited, showed he was an O type secretor. But as was highly likely, Peter Alphon had also been shown to be an O secretor. James Hanratty closely matched the latest description given by Valerie, it seemed almost certain. As far as Hanratty's criminal past, he had been seen by a court four times, stealing cars, breaking and entering, burglary, larceny. While he had served that three-year correctional training sentence, he had attempted to escape several times, including one which resulted in him being moved to a different training prison entirely, and throughout that time he had a long list of disciplinary issues. Also, as Valerie stated, the killer had said, Anratty had done the lot. The things that did not add up were that unlike the attacker had claimed, Hanratty had never served five years. He had never been convicted of any offence involving sex or violence, and as would later become apparent, although he was a repeat offender who had a predilection for housebreaking, he was known to be extremely courteous to women and no one would come forward to suggest that he had ever acted inappropriately towards girls and women before. The other thing that was puzzling was that, according to Valerie, the gunman was acting like he had only recently left prison and was sleeping rough. Hanratty had been out of prison five months and had apparently done well enough off the proceeds of house robberies that he would not find the need to be without shelter, as the killer suggested. It was, however, hard for police to truly rule out Peter Alphon at this stage. He seemed to have strange and unexplainable links to the crime, and he was a very close match to Valerie's first description. He had stayed at the Vienna that week. He had locked himself in the room of a different hotel for five days after the murder. He was known to be an erratic driver, and the woman who was attacked in Richmond hearing the intruder say, I am the A6 killer, 
picked Alphon out of a lineup. Twenty-four at the time, James Hanratty was born in 1936 in the small Kent village of Farnborough. He was still a baby when he and his parents moved to Wembley, North London, and they would go on to have three more sons. By all accounts, the family was close and supportive, but they struggled with James from a young age. He found school difficult, and before reaching his teens, his Barnet Secondary School suggested he be moved to a special needs school. He still couldn't read or write, and they labelled him unteachable and mentally handicapped. But his parents refused to believe it. They could see he was slow, but they did not accept he had mental deficiencies. A modern look at the struggles James was facing at the time suggests now he had dyslexia. After leaving school at 15, he went to work in refuse at the Wembley Borough Council until an event occurred that year that may have changed the course of James Hanratty's entire life. At the age of 16, Hanratty fell from his bicycle, hitting his head. He remained unconscious for over 10 hours and spent nine days in hospital recovering. After this, he moved out of home and went to Brighton, where two months later he collapsed in the street, assumed to have been from exposure. He was hospitalised and diagnosed with a brain haemorrhage, given a craniotomy, which determined that he had not suffered a brain haemorrhage at all. By the time he was released from the hospital, it was believed that he had actually suffered a mild form of traumatic brain injury that can affect patients for months following injury. Post-concussional syndrome, as it is now known, can cause physical symptoms, but it also can affect a patient's psychological state, even causing changes in one's personality. Studies now show that symptoms can range from irritability and aggression to PTSD, and in some patients it can lead to or exacerbate pre-existing conditions like anxiety or depression. Modern neuropsychological tests now attribute it to attention issues, verbal learning delays, problems with reasoning, as well as information processing. James Hanratty already had behavioural problems, possibly stemming from undiagnosed dyslexia, and in the years that followed it was also put forward that he may have had a form of epilepsy. But Hanratty did not go home to North London after leaving hospital he went to stay with his aunt in Bedford. Once he was on his feet, he began a job which he stayed at while spending his spare time in London. He frequented the bars and clubs of Soho, where he began meeting people who introduced him to quick fixes. Soon, Hanratty was housebreaking and selling stolen goods. At 18, he received his first serious conviction that saw him on the inside of the borstal in London's Wormwood Scrubs, where he would slash his wrists in a suicide attempt. Sentenced to two concurrent two-year terms for burglary and stealing, his prison record labelled him as a potential psychopath, and it was by then well known he was a compulsive liar. 
After release, he lasted five months on the outside. He was living back with his parents, his father leaving his own job trying to keep James out of trouble. However, he was caught stealing a car and driving without a license, returning to prison, this time in Liverpool. It was then at 21 he received his three-year CT or corrective training sentence at Wandsworth. By then his record was clearly labelled psychopath and the belief that with training he may show reform dissipated with his constant escape attempts from every prison he was moved to. First he tried to escape from Wandsworth, then Maidstone after he was transferred there, then again at Camp Hill on the Isle of Wight. This last escape attempt saw him being sent to Strangeways Prison in Manchester with a short stint at Durham. When Scotland Yard were discussing Hanratty as their new number one suspect, they had assumed that the gunman, who they believed now was Hanratty, had said he had done the lot, meaning he had served his full sentence. But could the gunman, if it was Hanratty, have simply meant he had done the lot of prisons, as in, been in them all? For the five months between his release and the attack on Valerie and Michael, Hanratty had travelled around the UK visiting people he knew and breaking into houses. His circle was by then entirely made up of criminal associates and ex-prison cellmates. As the investigation sped along, the police began receiving calls about their new suspect. One call was from the daughter of a long-time friend and associate of Hanratty's, Charles France, known as Dixie who lived in North London with his wife and kids. Hanratty had got to know Dixie in Soho, where he was a well-known mover. Hanratty visited them often, and the police knew it. Dixie told police that he was well aware that his young friend closely resembled the latest sketch. Dixie's 16-year-old daughter Carol told police that on the bank holiday weekend of August 5th, a couple of weeks before the murder, Hanratty was in London with them. He was aware she was a trainee hairdresser and had asked her to dye his auburn-coloured hair black. He confessed that his hair was too conspicuous for a housebreaker. She then saw him again on August 26th, just a few days after the murder had occurred. He came to see her as the colour was fading and dark regrowth was showing. He wanted it dyed dark again. So if Hanratty was the killer, this may explain the confusion over whether his hair was dark or auburn. Hanratty called his friend Dixie who told him the police wanted to speak with him about the A6 murder, suggesting he should hand himself in. Anratty swore black and blue he had nothing to do with any murder and had an alibi in Liverpool. He didn't want to call the police as he had been housebreaking recently and had hot goods, knowing very well that any charge would see him in prison at least another five years. What Hanratty did not realise was that the police were already at Dixie's house listening to the phone call. They attempted to trace it, but they were unsuccessful. Hanratty had attempted to dye his hair back to Auburn, knowing the police were looking for a dark-haired man, 
but the result of dying back and forth had turned his hair into a bright, unnatural bleached orange colour. Dixie was taken into Scotland Yard and faced almost an entire day of questioning. One thing said by Dixie in that interview then turned the course of the entire investigation. He told police at the time, before the events of August 22nd and 23rd, James Hanratty had been at his house having a conversation about what he would do if he ever got on a bus with stuff in his pockets that he needed to get rid of. Dixie said he would sort it out upstairs on the bus and put the good stuff in his pocket and put the rubbish under the back seat because the space under the back seat was hollow. Peter Ralphon was then dropped as a suspect and James Hanratty became the most wanted murder suspect in Britain. Scotland Yard put a call out for James Hanratty to hand himself in. This is the end of episode 9. To hear more on the investigation, the trial and what happened next, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to this week's Patreon producers Draw Elk Vitti, to Nukefadira, Mark Morley, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. If you want to become a Patreon producer, find out more at patreon.com forward slash they walk among us for our listeners in the uk you can purchase a copy of our book they walk among us available to order from all good bookshops for more information please see our show notes or visit they walk among us It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.